Man, such rich, life-giving words in that song. Do you realize that? As you were singing that, did you, you realize what you're praying, right? It's not only an acknowledgement of our need, but a recognition of what we must do in response to that very need, which is to come to the source of life. It is to come to the one who can satisfy that need that we so desperately have. Indeed, that is the privilege that we have now as we come to God through his living and abiding word. We come to encounter him. And so that's what exactly we're going to do this morning as we invite you to turning your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible this morning, have no fear. We have two men who have been bench pressing all week to carry these heavy Bibles so that they can make their way and give them to you. So offload those. Just put your hand in the air. They'd be happy to make sure that you get one so you can follow along with us this morning because we are continuing our study today in this marvelous chapter and really many ways what we might say is the climax of Philippians, picking off where we left two weeks ago. In verses one through three of chapter three, uh, we saw really uh, this argument of where joy is either found or lost, found exclusively in Christ alone or lost in the temptation to find our righteousness, our peace in things outside of Jesus, namely ourselves. And the major battle that is at play here as we come to Philippians chapter 3 is where is the source of our confidence for our salvation? Does that confidence come from what we can do and what we can accomplish? Or is that confidence exclusively found in Christ alone. Where does assurance for our salvation ultimately rest? Well, today, Paul is going to show us why we should have the utmost confidence in the perfect, finished work of Jesus. And so I invite you this morning to stand and honor the public reading of God's Word as we read from Philippians chapter 3. For the context of what we studied a few weeks ago, I'm going to begin in verse 1. The focus of our study this morning will be verses 4 to 11, but we'll start back up in verse 1, where Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But... Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my, lo- my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. These are the life-giving words of our Heavenly Father this morning. You may be seated and let's ask for the Lord's favor now as we come to him. Father, we've already sung and prayed and acknowledged this morning that we need you, that we can carry everything to you in prayer. And Lord, as we now do indeed come to you through your word and even approach your throne, we come boldly asking for your wisdom this morning. Uh, What stands before us this morning is really a, a mountain of theological depth that is so much and far beyond anything that I can fully communicate in the next 40 minutes. And so, Lord, we need your grace. We need it abundantly this morning to be able to fully comprehend what you are trying to speak to us. And yet, Lord, even then, we we recognize that the truths that we're going to unpack here are really lifelong journeys of, of understanding that today we only scratch the surface of. But, Lord, I pray that we would treasure deeply in order that we may better know you and the joy of being united to you by faith. So grant us that grace this morning. Now, as we come to your word, we would ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the nature of investments is the principle of gaining through some form of loss. You see, initially, you are releasing your possession of a certain degree of assets, putting them elsewhere with the hope that you will one day receive greater gains in return. Now, not all losses generate the type of gain or return that you hope for. Uh, That is true in the financial realm, but that's also just true of life in general. Our family has experienced some unique losses in recent weeks. For example, our middle daughter, a few weeks ago, lost one of her front teeth. There is no tooth in return, just a big open gap in return. But one day, the return will be a tooth that looks exactly like the one that was there before. So the principle of a tooth for a tooth still applies right there. A few weeks ago, we lost a set of keys that have yet to be found in our house somewhere. So we have yet to know what the return on that is going to be. And then, as of this last Monday, we suffered the loss of our pool. (laughs) Succumbed to a rusty wall and the loss of 20,000 gallons of water in our backyard. Only to have, in return, this empty crater that looks like a giant UFO landing spot in our backyard. But what about loss in the spiritual realm? What does our passage this morning have to say about the principle of gaining through losing? I believe that Paul's words teach us this morning that all is loss compared 
to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. Quite simply, the point of verse 8 that I think stands at the heart of this passage, all is loss. All is loss when compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. In looking at our passage for this morning, it would be easy to think that Paul is simply inserting his personal testimony here for the benefit of the Philippians, which I think can be true to a certain degree. We obviously benefit from him sharing his personal story. But his story here, I think, proves the bigger point of this section, and we could even say maybe the letter of Philippians as a whole. It's Paul's way of saying, I've been down this road before. I've taken this journey of what it looks like to put confidence in the flesh, and guess what? It's a dead end. It's a road that leads to nowhere. The path of confidence based on what you contribute to your salvation is burdensome, it's tiring, and it will rob you of all joy. And so Paul takes the Philippians and us by extension this morning on a journey down his spiritual past to help us see what the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord means to the Christian. I think we see, first of all, that knowing Christ Jesus as Lord means losing what you once held dear. Losing what you once held dear. In other words, losing what you thought was of greatest value to you, your greatest assets. I think what Paul's getting at here really in these verses here is the loss of your former confidence. So let's look at this this morning. In verses 4 to 8, what, what, what was Paul's main concern with these people, these dogs that he refers to back in verse 2? We, we learned that these were these Judaizers, right? These people who were kind of infiltrating the churches in Asia Minor. What was his concern with these people? Well, it was that they misplaced confidence for their salvation by trusting in Jesus plus certain external features of the Jewish law, particularly that if you wanted to identify yourself with God's people, then what you really needed to do was to be circumcised. That really you had no assurance of your salvation apart from adhering to these customs. But Paul reminds his readers that it is utter foolishness to place your confidence in anyone or anything other than the perfect finished work of Jesus. Paul knows this from firsthand experience. He's tried it. And guess what? His efforts really were as good as you could possibly do. He knows that, and he wants his readers to know that as well. And so what he does in verses 5 to 6 is provide essentially his spiritual resume for everyone to be able to see. Essentially, he is saying here, if salvation is based on how good you do and where you come from, then guess what? I win. (laughs) I win. If it was based on these things, check out this resume. Check out my former life, and you'll see that I excel. There's no way that you could possibly top me. 
So what does this resume that he puts forth look like? Well, we could see that it includes four inherited privileges and three personal achievements. So let's look at them real quick. Verse 5, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Remember, the issue at stake here is this idea of circumcision. But for a lot of these uh, people who were coming to faith, it was the fact that they were Gentiles. They were people outside the people of Israel. And so they were what we would call converts. They were, they were proselytes. Paul's saying, that's not me. I was circumcised on the eighth day. That's in accordance with Old Testament law. Right? I, I'm pure-blooded. I come from the original stock. I have the, the sign that identifies myself with God's people. And he further elaborates that in verse 5 when he says, I'm of the people of Israel. I'm from the right race. Right? I am from the, the pure-blooded stock of God's people. Verse 5, he continues, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Remember, there were 12 tribes of Israel, all corresponding to the 12 sons that Jacob had. One of Jacob's favorites was Benjamin because it was the, the, uh, he was the son of the wife that he loved most, Rachel. Benjamin, we learn in the Old Testament, was one of the only tribes that stayed loyal to the house of Judah and the house of David after Solomon's death. And of course, it was also the tribe from which the first king of Israel came, a guy by the name of what? Saul, from where we get Paul's namesake. Remember, Paul, before he was Paul, was Saul. Not only that, he was, according to verse 5, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. It's kind of a summation of the previous statements, but it's basically his way of saying, I am the purest of Jew that a Jew can get. I come from the right stock. But just like an infomercial, wait, there's more. It's not just where he comes from, it's what he's done. Verse 5, he says, as to the law, as it relates to my relationship to the Jewish law, guess what? I'm a Pharisee. A Pharisee was uh, considered to be a, a separated one, somebody who had really set themselves apart to adherence to Jewish Old Testament laws. I mean, we're talking about like 600 different commandments, and he dedicated his life to being obedient to them. We could call him a rigorous rule follower. Rigorous rule follower. Verse 6, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. Paul was so passionate about his Jewish faith that when the church gained momentum after Jesus' resurrection, he worked full-heartedly to put it to a stop. He was adamant, right? He was, he was so passionate about his Jewish upbringing and this guy who had caused all this disorder, this guy by the name of Jesus, he was willing to do anything to put it to a stop so that he would preserve the true Jewish people. He was consumed by rigorous religious zeal. And the culmination of all, verse 6, as to righteousness, blameless. Blameless. Not sinless or perfect, but lived in such a way that no one could raise their case against Paul. In his blinded eyes, in the eyes of the world, he was a righteous man. If righteousness was about who you are and what you do, Paul wins. He wins. 
If Judaism were scouts, Paul would be an Eagle Scout. If it were a degree, he would have his PhD. If it were karate, he'd have a black belt, although I learned this week that that's actually not the highest level of that. But for the sake of argument here, he's the best. If he were to die and stand before God, he would have his good list ready to say, here you go, God, here's my resume, check it out, ready to be let in. It's one thing to look at Paul and this list, but it's another to really put ourselves in his shoes. If we were to modernize Paul's list here, what might our resume say is the source of our confidence for our salvation? For many people, what would they be ready to present to God when they stand at the gates and say, this is why you should let me into heaven, Lord? Perhaps it would say something like, well, I was baptized at a really early age. I was born and and raised in a a strong Christian family. We had a strong Christian value system and and were raised to believe. I, I went to church every Sunday. I was engaged in the Bible studies. I served in the church I had a really rigorous Bible reading plan. I I prayed before every single meal. I gave to the church financially. I stood up for Christian values in school or in the workplace. I voted based on my Christian ethics. I was a rule follower to the T. You could go on and on and on about what this might look like for us. And here's the clarifier. Are any of these things by themselves bad? No. None of these things in and of themselves are bad things, are they? What I am saying, and what Paul is saying here this morning, is that none of these things by themselves is a source of security for your salvation. None of these things are a source of confidence for why you are right with God. None of these things save you. That's why verse 7, Paul begins by saying, But, but whatever gain I had, in other words, everything that I just listed there in verses 4 through 6, whatever gain I had, I Count as loss. Paul plays the accountant here and he moves everything that he once saw as gain, all these assets for his life, and he now in one swipe moves them over to the loss column. And he replaces it with one thing in the gain column. Knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. Knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. Paul is saying here, to play this game of trying to count all these things that you thought were of value to you, that you thought would actually earn you favor with God, if you were going to play that game, it's no different than entering into a corn maze that has no exit. You're only going to run into dead ends constantly. How can this be? How can this be? Because of what you ultimately gain in return. Because of what you gain in return and what you gain as a Christian and what you gain with Christ is a brand new perspective. 
In verses 7 and 8, Paul compares his former way of life with his brand new one in Christ. And guess what? He says, it's not even close. Knowing Jesus is all the difference in the world. And notice, it doesn't say knowing about Jesus. It says knowing Jesus. That word for knowing here is not just intellectual, it's, it's relational. It means you have intimate relationship with him. You know this person. You exist in relationship with him. You don't just know about him as some person out there and know facts about him. No, Paul is describing a relationship, one of intimacy and affection. Having that and trusting in that is far better. In fact, he says it's surpassing worth. There's no worth of greater value than that. In fact, when Paul now looks at his old way of life and what he used to trust in, you know what it looks like to him? A heaping pile of garbage. He says in verse 8 there, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as what? Rubbish. Rubbish. It's a word that would have been considered an expletive in the first century. One that could have meant dung, fecal matter, could have meant garbage and trash. I just put those two ideas together. We have a diaper genie in our house where you put all the diapers into and then that goes into the trash. So you think of the most disgusting trash bin you can. That's what he's talking about here. You see, apart from Christ, your life is a giant trash can. It's a giant trash can. Earlier this year, Progressive put out a, a great commercial, one that makes me laugh every time, about how you don't want to become like your parents. Maybe you've seen this. But you have this married couple, and the, the wife is looking at the window, out the window at her husband, and what is her husband doing? He's cleaning the trash cans. And the Progressive agent who's on site is uh, going out there and approaching him and saying, Hey, buddy, what, what are you doing there? And the guy in proud, exciting words says, Oh, I'm just, I'm just cleaning my trash cans. To which the progressive agent just responds, Why? <laughs> Why? It's a trash can. Church, you see, if you are compiling a spiritual resume, but ultimately not trusting in Christ alone, all you're doing is cleaning the outside of the trash can. But it's still a trash can. But praise be to God that in knowing Christ Jesus as Lord, you gain what you so desperately need. And that begins with gaining the surpassing worth of Christ himself. At the end of the day, the things of this world, whether they be accomplishments or accolades or pursuits, they do not truly satisfy they are simply broken cisterns that can never hold water. But when your life is united to Jesus by faith, you gain Christ himself. You gain a person. You gain a relationship. And Paul assures us here that that makes you the richest person in this world. Sure, your lost column may be packed full with all these things, but who cares? Who cares about any of those things anymore when you have Christ? 
If Christ is your gain, then you have everything that you need in him. And again, to be clear, it's not as if the things that we've talked about here are of no value to you or they're bad by themselves. It's not wrong for you to be adamant and going to church, being involved in church, being raised in a Christian home, being baptized, having a Bible reading plan, praying, serving, you name it. All those things are good. But what is wrong to place is to place your confidence in any of those things as a source or means to your eternal salvation. Because it is only by knowing Christ Jesus as Lord that you obtain the perfect righteousness of Christ. And church, I would maybe argue that this is perhaps the most important verse in this section, verse 9. Do not look past verse 9 at what Paul is saying here. He says, and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. I believe that this is the most important verse that this whole section hinges on. In verse 6, Paul's previous source of righteousness was what? It was himself. He believed that the righteousness that he needed to get him into heaven was based on himself. But the Bible makes clear that our problem is not just our sin, but it's our lack of righteousness. You see, Paul, upon his salvation, gained the perspective that none of these things actually made him righteous. And the Bible says it's not just that we be sinless, but that we be righteous. The Bible says you must be holy as God himself is holy. See, the removal of sin through Jesus' death is great, but that by itself does not make you righteous. It simply makes you neutral with God. But God doesn't require you to be neutral. He requires you to be righteous. You see, we need access to righteousness that is not tainted by our sinful human nature. Simply put, that's why we need Jesus. Verse 9, church, is the essence of what makes Christianity different than every other religion and worldview in this world. You need to understand that this morning. Verse 9 is that critical to you. It is what separates Christianity from every other worldview in the world because every other worldview is based on what you do. Somehow what you earn, what you deserve in response to how you live, whereas Christianity is not based on what you do, but who you put your trust in and what that person has done on your behalf. You see, when you are united to Christ by faith, you are granted the perfect righteousness of Jesus so that now when God sees you, even when you mess up, even when you still sin, even when you still fall short, what he sees is no longer the imperfect sinner, the one who fails constantly, but what he sees is Christ in you. He sees you and your identity with Christ so that when he looks at your life, he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus that covers you completely. That is the perfect work of Christ. That is what faith unites us to. 
which leads us lastly to consider how knowing Christ Jesus as Lord means that you press on towards the ultimate goal. How you press on towards the ultimate goal because knowing Jesus as Lord and being united to him by faith doesn't just grant you what you need. It also empowers you to keep moving forward. The thought begins here, the thought that Paul begins here in verse 10 is actually something that he continues on down through verse 16, which is what we're going to look at next week. But for now, I think it helps us to start to see how this truth is not just something we appreciate and we say, thank you, Lord, appreciate you for saving me, and now I'm just going to go about my life. No, if this is true, if this is truly the life-giving righteousness that we so desperately need, then if our life is united to Jesus, then it should look radically different. It shapes and empowers the way that you live each and every day as one who is identified with Jesus. And the ultimate goal that Paul has in mind down in verse 14 is what? I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. His goal is eternal. It's heaven. It's the day that when he will forever be with Christ. After all, he's already told us that. Hasn't he? Back in Philippians chapter 1, he says, for me to live as Christ and to die is what? It's gain. He says in verse 23, he makes it very clear. I desire to depart and to be with Christ because that is what? Far better. It's necessary for me to remain and to serve you, but for me to die and to go and to be with Jesus, church, it's far better. It's far better. And that is the goal that I am pressing on towards because I know that one day that will be my highest good. But Paul recognizes that until that time, this life is a journey. It's similar to John Bunyan's main character, Christian, in his classic work, The Pilgrim's Progress. It's a refining process, isn't it? It's not easy. And it comes with struggles. So what is this journey all about? This journey is about becoming more like Christ. It's about becoming more like Christ. Paul expresses his clear desire for this to the Philippians in verse 10. Notice what he says here. His desire is that he would know Christ, that he would know him. Verse 10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. So the first thing he desires to know is more of the resurrection power of Jesus, not just the power that transformed him at conversion, which granted him new life, not only the the power that transforms him one day when he is with Christ in glory, but the power that is currently transforming him and is transforming us as his people, giving us strength to live each day by faith, trusting in the one who has overcome the dead and already secured victory for believers. You see, resurrection power gives us a mindset, church. It gives us a perspective to remind us that each and every day, the power that we walk in is the power that has already secured the victory in the end. So often when we're watching movies with our girls at home and there's a bad guy or a villain in the movie and they start to get nervous and they start to get scared, the, the best thing that I can ever do as a parent is remind them, hey, what happens in the end? Do the good guys win? The good guys win. 
You can rest in that. And guess what? As Christians, we already know the ending. We already have the hope. We already have the security of knowing Christ wins in the end. He has already secured that resurrection power for you. So you can live your life knowing that now. And that's important because of what he talks about next and that he would share in the sufferings of Christ. That mindset is powerful. And when he says to, to share in the sufferings of Christ, guess what? That's the same root word that we've loved to study throughout the book of Philippians. It's that same word for koinonia or fellowship. We've encountered it several times throughout the book and we've loved it so far, haven't we? Chapter 1, verse 5, we've talked about partnership in the gospel. Man, that's good. Chapter 1, verse 7, we are partakers of grace. That is great. Chapter 2, verse 1, fellowship in the spirit. That's amazing. Chapter 3, verse 10, we share in his sufferings. Whoa. (laughs) How about we go back to that whole fellowship in the spirit thing, right? No way I ever say anything about sharing in any suffering here, right? And yet, here's the thing, church. God uses suffering for the name of Christ, for the sake of Christ, as one of the greatest tools for your spiritual transformation. Because it takes you from just being a beneficiary of his grace to now a partaker with him in that grace. All of these things work together for greater conformity to the person of Christ. In fact, verse 10 says we become like him then in his death. And that is really a a, a strange phrase to us. As most of us would be hesitant to say that our death could ever be like what Jesus endured at the cross. But I don't believe that Paul has in mind some form of death replication here. It's probably best to understand Christ's death here in light of the previous verse about suffering and all that led to his death. In fact, back in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, we learned that it was really perfect obedience to the will of God that led to his death. And what it's calling to here is becoming like him in his death, saying that we live a life that is faithful and consistent to God's will to, to, to carry out a life of humility and humble obedience to him. In that way, we do become like him. Gordon Fee says it this way. He says, it means for those who know Christ to live in such a way that their lives bear the same likeness. And the culmination of it all in verse 11 is our final resurrection. Verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. When he says by any means, he's not... I don't think this is Paul saying he's confused. I don't know what, what, what might happen. I think it's just his way of saying whether I die and later rise from the dead or I remain until Christ returns and I receive my new transformed glorified body, Paul knew that the hope that awaited him was perfect conformity to Christ. Receiving a glorified body similar to that of his Savior. Thus, as 1 John 3, 2 says, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And when that day comes, church, we will receive the greatest prize of all. Do you know what that prize is? It's not just your glorified body. It's not just being free from the power of sin and death and pain and suffering. 
It's not just about becoming like Christ, but it is about getting to be with Christ. That is the prize of the upward call that Paul longs for in verse 14. And it should be no surprise to us. After all, Jesus himself said that this is our greatest good. In John 17, 24, he actually prayed this for all believers, that they may be with him and see him in his glory, for that is our highest good. Church, what is your greatest desire today? What do you long for more than anything else? I think many of you in here probably have goals in life. I'm guessing for many of you students or young people in here, there are prizes and things that you are striving to accomplish in life. But in light of all that we have seen this morning, is there anyone more worthy of your pursuit and your greatest efforts than Jesus. Than working towards the prize and the goal of the upward call that we have in him. This passage has the power to change so much of who you are as a believer. And as we think back on everything we've meditated on so far, here's a couple key things that I think are important for us to take away this morning. So the first of which is this, that knowing Jesus as Lord is the source of surpassing joy. Knowing Jesus as Lord is the source of all surpassing joy. Or we could say in correspondence with our theme for this book, it is the source of indestructible joy. It's hard to fully put into words what Paul is trying to communicate in this passage. I've already said that here. But because on the surface, this trade-off looks pretty radical to us. It would be equivalent to us seeing somebody uh, who sells their home, empties their piggy bank, quits their job, all in pursuit of this old crusty artifact that looks like it has no value whatsoever. If we saw that in this world, we would have some questions. We would have some concerns. We would be calling some people. But as it turns out, that artifact is the most valuable treasure in the world. What they gain in return is far greater than anything that they gave up. In fact, that's no different than what Jesus himself described about the kingdom of God in Matthew 13. In Matthew 13, 44 and 46, he compared it to a treasure that was found in a field. And the guy in his joy does what? He goes and he sells everything that he has so that he can purchase that field. Would have looked radical in the eyes of the world, but guess what? In return, what he gets of far surpassing value. Compares it to a pearl of great price, right? Something that, again, surrenders everything he has in order to get that pearl, All of it that he surrenders is loss compared to the pearl that he gets in return. Church, when you see Jesus as the treasure that he truly is, it puts everything else in life into perspective. All is lost compared to the surpassing worth of having Jesus as your Lord and Savior. He is the source of joy that nothing else in this world can provide. Secondly, one of the richest truths in the Bible is your union with Jesus. 
One of the richest truths in the Bible is your union with Jesus. Boy, I wish we had more time because I, I cannot begin to communicate how critical this teaching is to your life. In fact, when I was in seminary, a mentor of mine uh, argued in one of his sermons that this doctrine uh, is perhaps one of the most important, if not the most important in all of the Bible. And that you ask yourself, well, how can that be? It sounds so abstract. I didn't even understand it then, but I'm beginning to understand it better now. Because at the very heart of what Paul writes here in verse 9, it's the essence of what it means to be a Christian. The fullness of what he's talking about here is what it means to be in Christ, to be in him. I want to encourage you to, you to do an exercise this week. When you're reading your Bible, you're doing your devotions, whatever you do throughout the week, I would encourage you, if you're in the New Testament, every time you see the phrase in Christ or in him, circle it, underline it, highlight, whatever you do, and I think you're going to be blown away by how many times you see it. You see, union with Christ is what happens when our lives are joined to Jesus by faith. In fact, this is really, it's the basis of our assurance if the basis of our assurance for our salvation is how good we are, then we have all reason to be concerned. But if the basis of our assurance is our faith that unites us to Jesus, then it's no longer about what we do. It's about what Christ has done for us. And it has given us access to the full range of benefits that come from being in Jesus. Because see, church, when we are in him, we are dead to sin. When we are in him, we are new creations. When we are in him, we are chosen and redeemed. When we are in him, we have access to the righteousness of God. That changes everything for who you are and how you live and, and how you are viewed in the eyes of the Lord. Our union with Jesus means that when God sees us, he sees Christ in us. That is the marvelous truth that saves you and me. Third, participation in Christ's sufferings is a cause for rejoicing. It is a cause for great rejoicing. And that sounds like a strange statement, but I believe that it gets to the heart of what Paul writes here in verse 10, that suffering for the sake of Christ is actually a means that God uses to draw us closer to him. It is meant to strengthen, not to destroy our faith. And that was important for the Philippians in their context of potential suffering. Paul had been hinting at this so far throughout the letter. In fact, in back, back in verse 29 of chapter 1, he said, It has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, not only that you should believe in him, but also suffer for his name's sake. But it's not only that you should embrace that reality, it's also that it should be cause for joy. Peter writes this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, that we should not be surprised when suffering and, and hardships come upon us, but rather we should rejoice in so far that we get to share in Christ's sufferings. And what Peter writes here gives us perspective to endure this life with hope because of the one that is yet to come. Yes, if you are living faithfully for Christ, challenges are going to come to you. People will press hard against you but praise be to God that he is using all of these things to refine you and has given you everything that you need in order to press forward in faith. And then finally this morning, there is no end to the journey of knowing Christ Jesus. At the heart of this passage is Paul's desire to be in intimate relationship with his Savior. 
The surpassing worth of Jesus Christ as Lord comes from knowing him. Paul knew that pressing on in the faith would only be a success to him as far as he is able to know him. And Paul makes clear in this passage that knowing Christ is a lifelong process. It's a lifelong process. It's a journey that is started out in this life and continues on into eternity future. It's a path that we will never exhaust and we will never reach its end and praise God for that. So church, in light of the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ, I want to exhort you today to live your life with the goal of knowing him. Because there is no greater goal or source of joy than the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you for putting before us this morning exactly what we need to be reminded of in a world that constantly competes for our attention, in a world that constantly seeks to distract us, in a world that constantly seeks to have us place our confidence in all the wrong places, you set before our eyes this morning Christ Jesus in all of his surpassing worth, in all of his surpassing glory. Lord, you know that at the end of the day, what we need most in this life is Christ and to have our lives united to him by faith. So Lord, help us to walk in that today. Help us to rest in that today. For all those who are weary and burdensome, trying to uphold the laws and trying to be good enough, Lord, help them to surrender that mindset and run to Christ who is the source of perfect righteousness, perfect rest, and perfect peace. Would you be pleased to do that today? We would ask in Jesus' name.